0: Thank you so much for joining us today for Episode 8 of Season 3 of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama.
1: And I'm Dr. Lisa Bowen, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies also at the University of Alabama, and we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. So, Kim, I know that we both do at least a little bit of uh, social media scrolling. And Maybe a little, yeah. <laughs> and I often send you pictures that I find on social media of donuts um, <laughs> or cake. Or, is or, or band- furniture,
0: candy? yes. <laughs> Yes. Furniture.
1: But I wonder how much thought is put into each of those posts. Like were there multiple takes? How long did they like create, take creating the picture? Are the people posting, hoping for likes or purchases, probably purchases, visits to be picked up by other media? And Mm I know that when I post on social media, it's not really about picked up by additional media. Although to be honest, I just know that phone call recruiting my puppies for modeling is coming any day.
0: Any day. Absolutely. All of our puppies and kitties are going to be stars. It's just a matter of time. One thing that I think about when it comes to social media is that I see a lot of posts from people, including some of the famous people that I don't see covered on the mainstream media.
1: Yes, and including those people who I think should be famous. So, like, I follow a woman who has a running streak that's over a decade. It's actually, like, (laughs) why she not covered nightly on SportsCenter. Shout out to you at Daily Run with Ja.
0: So today we talked with Dr. Lauren Reichert-Smith, an associate professor in the media school at Indiana University about her research, which is really cool. She studies who gets coverage and how they get coverage. And I'm not going to spoil what she talks about, but as you might guess or maybe have, have observed, there are indeed incongruencies in how athletes are portrayed in mainstream media and how they portray themselves on social media. So stick with us as we talk today with Dr. Lauren Ryford Smith. Welcome, Lauren. <music> Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to be able to catch up with you today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Okay, Lauren. So we will talk about research, but (laughs) I heard a rumor that there is something special and unique about you, and that that not only are you a triathlete, I mean, that's cool, but are our entire man. Like, okay, I, I don't even know, but it's very fancy and very cool and amazing. So can you tell me and our listeners what that means? What, what are you swimming, biking, running, and all at one time?
2: all all of the above um the the ironman is the longest distance triathlon race that there is there's there's multiple different distances but the ironman is the longest it is a 2.4 mile swim 112 mile bike and then a marathon 26.2 mile run um and you have se- you have 17 hours to do it in so um we start at sunrise and you go until you're done, and it is a long day, um, but it's fun. And so I've done two, and I'm about to do my third in a couple weeks.
0: Wow. <laughs> so I'm still trying to process <laughs> all those miles consecutively in the same 24-hour span. Um, and I promise we're definitely going to get to your research and scholarship. <laughs> but do you, do you have, like, a favorite race or a favorite race story that
2: you can share with our listeners? <sighs> um gosh i mean i i have a lot of good moments and a lot of good memories i think probably one of my favorites would be my first iron man that i did um i did it in 2017 um i had a coach he did not he he flat out told me i don't think you can do this oh. um which if you if you tell me that oh, my no. reaction is going to be uh, screw you! Watch me. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, it was it was in Louisville. It was such a great atmosphere, and you know, a bunch of my friends were there uh, to spectate. My husband was obviously there. Um, you know, just it was from start to finish. It was such a fun and exciting day. Um, I loved everything about it. Um, obviously, enough to keep doing more. So, <laughs> um, awesome. There's there's so many great memories from that day. That's probably one of my one of my favorites.
1: I like that, and as as a one time half marathoner, uh, <laughs> who was constantly looking behind me to for for the bus, <laughs> <laughs> <me up. laughs> like seventeen. You have seventeen hours, and then is there a bus that comes and gets the? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, well, in each in each discipline there's there's a cutoff. So if you don't finish the swim in I think it's two hours and twenty minutes, then they just pull you off the course. And then the bike has a couple different cutoffs mm. um, because the thought is if you can't make those time cutoffs, you're not going to finish in the seventeen hours. So mm. um, you know, and at some venues they have to pull you out of the water so you know <laughs> the boats can get out there or the cars can get back on the road if it's if the bike course. So. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're still out there at 17 hours on the run, usually they'll mm. let you finish and cross the finish line, but you know that you're going to get the, the DNF the do not finish uh. distinction after your name. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I know, <laughs> it's a big uh, oof.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that and yes. uh, that all sh- to, uh, shift gears and hear about some of the other stuff you're doing.
2: Sure.
0: So, you are not currently at the University of Alabama, um, and so we would like for you to give us some basic information about who you are and what you do. We've heard all about triathlons and (laughs) Ironman, Um, but we call this the rapid fire section of our conversation with you, and this is just where we get to know, know you a little bit more.
1: Okay. All right. So, first, where are you from and or where did you grow up?
2: I am from Connecticut. I was born and raised there um, in a small town in the suburbs of of New York City in one of those commuter towns. Um, And I stayed in that area through college. I did my undergrad at Fairfield University. Um, And then when I graduated, I was ready for a change of scenery. I was ready for something different. Um, So I moved to Atlanta. Um, And then I spent my professional career bouncing back and forth between Atlanta and Birmingham, um, I did promotions. Uh, I was a television promotions producer first. Um, then I bounced over to concert sponsorship marketing for a, a couple of years. Um, and then I bounced back to TV, uh, worked my way up to promotions manager until I decided to switch gears completely and oh. go back to school and get my PhD.
1: Wow, so. okay, so I'm have questions about those words because I don't even know what they mean. Sure.? Oh, <laughs> are they? Where are you now?
2: I am currently an associate professor in the media school at Indiana University. And what city is that in? It is Bloomington, Indiana. We're about an hour southwest of Indianapolis. Gotcha.
1: And then when were you at the University of Alabama?
2: I was there from 2007, and I graduated in 2010. Perfect.
0: Okay, so that's a great um intro to who you are and what you do and what we'd like to do now is get a little more in-depth information about um kind of who you are as a researcher and as a scholar but i have to ask this what did the young lauren think she would be doing when she grew up um I mean, maybe it was in TV, um, but we kind of like our listeners to hear the path to the PhD and the path to academia. So did you think you would be a professor when you were 10 or 12 or 14?
2: No, not yeah. at all. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't even think I was going to be a professor when I graduated college. So um, <laughs> if, if I go back to young Lauren, I think first young Lauren was planning to be the next Mary Lou Retton. Um, that, that was, that was going to be my journey. Um, and then when that, that was not reality, I think I cycled through sort of the normal things that, that kids want to be. I was going to be an astronaut. I was going to be a doctor. And, um, my mom is a nurse and she said, I have always said I would never be a nurse. So So. apparently that was (laughs) off the table. Um, when I started college my I started college uh, trying to be an athletic trainer major um wow. but um, chemistry happened and they asked me to leave the program <laughs> after that so um, <laughs> I moved over to to communication where there was a lot less math um and and like I said I even when I graduated college I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do it was something in sports um you know that worked into morphed into working into television. And eventually there I circled around to doing, you know, promotions and branding for our sports department. But um, even even when I was a senior in college, I wrote a paper for my undergraduate research capstone course. And the professor submitted several of our papers to the undergraduate honors conference that DePaul University does every year. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fairfield magazine did a piece on those of us that got accepted. And I found this this piece not that long ago, but I'm quoted in that magazine article as saying, I'm the black sheep of the conference because <laughs> I'm the only one that doesn't want to go to grad school. <laughs> and I found that and went, well, that, that didn't really pan out. So, <laughs> um, You, you should- know, it <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, it was during, when I got my master's, um, I was working in Birmingham at the time I found in our employee handbook, I was working for the Fox O and O in Birmingham and I found in the employee handbook that, um, they would pay towards education. So I thought, well, if someone else is going to pay for me to get a master's, um, Mm -hmm. then I'll go. And so I got my master's there and that's really when I started to fall in love with research and the research process, um, in my last television job in Atlanta, I told my boss at the time that I would love to go back to school and get my PhD. Um, and her response was to ask me why I would waste my time doing something so stupid. Oh, oh, so, oh my goodness. <laughs> That that was the end of my television career, because I, I knew at that point, I was more interested in in the why behind what we were doing than actually the process of what we were doing. Uh-huh. Um, so so I started just to look around for, you know, what were, what were my options? What did grad school look like? And I, I found the program at Alabama and uh, the rest was history. Wow. <laughs> I
1: don't. Even- <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't happen. Often. Right. <laughs> so. Okay. So you've mentioned sports a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that something that you're currently researching? And can you give us an elevator, even if it's not, can you give us an elevator pitch on your research?
2: Yes. So, yes, I am firmly centered in the the sport media research realm. Um, And if I look at the elevator pitch, I would say that broadly my research looks at how athletes are portrayed in the media, um, and the effect those portrayals have on audiences. And since I've come to Indiana, it's really allowed me to shift my research more into a psychology effects-based path. Um, so that's been really exciting. And a lot of my work will focus on gender, but I also looked at, you know, race, nationality, instances of athlete activism, and really, you know, how do these portrayals affect us on an emotional level? Um, you know, is if the commentary is overtly sexist, what is our reaction to that? Does it make us angry? Does it lessen our enjoyment? Um, you know, what type of emotional reactions do we have from from the narratives and the portrayals that we see in sports media? Mm.
0: Okay, so I've got to ask a follow up question: How is your favorite athlete portrayed in
2: the media? <laughs> um, it depends on which media outlet they're in. Um, you know, the the growth of social media has been great. So one of one of my favorite athletes to follow is one of the professional triathletes, one of the professional women triathletes. And on her own social media, she it, you know, puts up these incredible workouts and she's just an amazing badass. <laughs> so, you know, to see these incredible workouts, you know, she's in Colorado and so she's riding and swimming and and all of these different things that she does, she gets zero recognition in the mainstream media. Wow. So, wow. so, you know, that that type of thing. But, um, you know, a lot of the athletes that I that I look up to right now, a lot of the athletes that I follow, I mean, we can go something with Simone Biles, even if you compare how she's, you know, talked about on NBC or ESPN, if she even makes it onto ESPN, um, is very different than the narrative she puts forth on her own social media um Mm -hmm. so so that's that's sort of the the easy answer is it depends it depends what what i'm looking at as to how they're portrayed
0: okay so another follow-up question um if you had to come up with a headline for one of your more interesting findings what would that headline be
2: um, I think it would, I actually think it would be my dissertation title, um, the title of my dissertation, which was uh, Winning Isn't Everything. Um, and so, you know, I sort of came up with that title. My dissertation looked at the effect of commentary on enjoyment um, using the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And in looking at that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the focus on sport, right, and games is who wins and who loses. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that paper taught me, and as I've gone forward, that there is so much more than the outcome, right? There is so much more that happens from between the time the whistle blows to begin till the time the game ends, that it's not necessarily always the outcome that is going to be the biggest effect on our emotions or on our enjoyment. Um, So... You know, that the findings in that study and then going forward opened up um, that path for me to look at all the various things that happen during sporting events um, and how the narratives we hear shape our overall perceptions of what is, you know, air quotes, acceptable in sport.
1: So, okay, I want to I want to dive a little bit deeper um, into the perception um, Mm -hmm. and and Okay. So if, if I'm an athlete, I'm not an athlete. Um, but <laughs> if I and I some social media that may not be what's picked up. Right. That's what, that's what you have just said. Mm-hmm. But then, so do you study kind of how, how an, a fan um, might engage with the social media versus the mainstream media versus, so I'm, um, I'm wondering like cuz I I might be discouraged if I didn't get any like coverage on the mainstream media and I'm out there like I- Iron Manning um, <laughs> or if I what I put out is very different than what's picked up. So kind of what 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 happens with that disconnect or not even the connection I mean there's no connection at all if you're not picked up. So what c- keep talking. Tell us more. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> um in short, I'm, keep talking. Just, <laughs> just go on. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, uh, you, you might have to edit this pause out um, <laughs> Well, while, while, while I think about, about how to answer this question. Um, so when I look at gender, I don't really do a lot of examinations of fan engagement. Um, I don't study how people are actually interacting with media. I look at how they're reacting to it. So, um, you know, a study that I did a couple of years ago with uh, two of my colleagues at Indiana looked at um, this commentary from the Rio games. Um, and we picked four different clips. Uh, one was beach volleyball. One was swimming, two were swimming. One was gymnastics where, all of the comments made by the commentators were sexist on some level, either overtly sexist or, you know, subtle, subtle sex, subtle sexism. And so what we did is we put, um, you know, we ran people through the lab and we asked about, you know, how does this make you feel Mm. um, when the Hungarian swimmer breaks the world record and her husband gets the credit for,
1: Mm.
2: for her win, does that, does that lessen your enjoyment? Does that, you know, does it make you angry, and so things like that. So that's really what I'm what I'm looking for. So um, I haven't done a study. I don't have anything in mind. But you know, the the portrayal of Simone Biles during the most recent Tokyo Olympics, um, when she pulled out for mental health reasons. I mean, I saw mm-hmm. a lot on social media that was was negative. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sure there's a huge multiple studies in there about how how was that perceived? Um, did it make people like her more? Did it make people like her less? Um, did it take away from this whole idea that she's the goat? Um, some, of the, some of the comments that I saw is the goat will push through no matter what. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, no, but okay. <laughs> so, so really, how does, how does that narrative, right? How do those comments, how does that narrative shape our perception, shape our enjoyment? But also, you know, on the flip side, I have another study that that I did several years ago now that's um, in in Jobum that looked at athletes self presentation on Instagram. How are athletes portraying themselves?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, does the narrative change? Do the visuals change when the athletes have control? Um, and I think that's a really interesting vein to study. Um, if I'm not dependent on media. You know, I can put forth anything I want. So let me show myself actually playing my sport, right, and not sitting on the sidelines.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and even, even for me on a personal level, that's something that I've really taken to heart with my own social media. Mm-hmm. Of I can sit back and complain, you know, female athletes are passive and they're never shown doing their sport. And I'm thinking, well, I'm an athlete and I still do a sport. So let me be at least a small part of, of making a change there and, and portraying a female being active, even if it means, you know, propping my phone up on rocks and sticks to to take a video (laughs) when I'm running on a path, um, just to have that, that motion in there to have some sort of active, you know, portrayal of what I'm doing out there. That's awesome.
0: Well, OK, I, I have a question, but I also have a statement as a follower of you on social media. I have to say that I, I, I actually I enjoy what you put out there about your training,
2: um, okay.
0: because what it I mean, what it shows me, the non Ironman individual, um, what it shows me is literally like how hard you have to work to make that happen. And I think for like women in sports or even women that compete in one of the disciplines, swimming, running, biking, you know, cycling one, you know, I'm just a runner. I drown in pools. I'm a runner, but like it, you know, I think what it shows me when it, it kind of keeps me motivated because it's like there are other people that are out there grinding it out as well. So, you know, as a fellow, less competitive, less successful. Person. Stop. <laughs> um, it's it's very cool. But here's my thank, question.
2: Thank you. Um, Actually, let me let me interrupt you because I'm going to say you are not just a runner. Um, take that narrative out. I have run one standalone marathon and I swear I will never do it again. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've ever done. It was, it was harder for me than it is training for an Ironman. Wow. So when people are like, I'm just a runner, I go, no, no, because <laughs> that is a whole different thing that, you know, I am not, I'm not a great runner. So <laughs> re- reframe your narrative.
0: <laughs> I, will re- I will, I will do that. Will
2: Thank do you. That. <laughs>
0: Um, okay. So shifting gears on you just a little bit, does your scholarship make it into your classes? What types of classes have you taught and does it tie into the research that you do or is it separate?
2: Um, it does a lot more now that I'm at Indiana. So before I was at Indiana, I was at Auburn for six years. Um, and when I was at Auburn, I was primarily in, in the PR, PR discipline. So I taught, you know, PR case studies, PR writing, you know, research methods, PR campaigns, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity to bring it in there. I was able to sort of broaden out in, in my last couple of years there to do, you know, more media effects course courses, sports and media courses. And so that's where I started to get more my, my scholarship in at Indiana. I teach in the sports media program. So uh, right uh-huh. now I'm teaching sports media and society and a managing sports media course. Those are my two on the regular. Um, but I've also taught sport and television, um, and so in those classes, it, it, primarily undergrad, and so while I won't have them read my work, um, I will often allude to, um, you know, where my work has been applicable. Like when we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, you know, gender in sport and, you know, framing of, of female athletes and, you know, this is the type of things that research has found. And I won't necessarily say my research, but that's where I'll pull in, you know, my findings and, and my observations and, and things like that.
1: So I have a follow-up for you there. Mm-hmm. This is a very broad question, so feel free to go narrower. <laughs> is, where, where do you see your field um, and kind of your research niche going in the next three, five years?
2: Um, I think there's a, a couple different A couple different avenues of of where it could go. I think, um, you know, as much as COVID was or has been awful, I don't want to say was awful because clearly it's not over. (laughs) Probably one of the good things to come out of COVID is that in the past year, we saw the viewership for women's sports explode Mm -hmm. um, in a way that we have not seen before. And so there's a lot of conversation about, look, if you put it out there, people will watch it there is a market for this and in that market you still have to be able to tell a good story nobody's gonna you know nobody's gonna be happy if they turn on the nwsl and they're talking about oh and she was out with her boyfriend and you know (laughs) she really likes long walks on the beach because we're like no we want to (laughs) see let's let's talk about them being an, an athlete um I, I saw a story yesterday that the Washington spirit just hired a guy to lead their team. And he's like, I don't know much about women's foot. you know, I don't know much about women's soccer. And I'm going, was this really the best hire that you, you could have made? <laughs> this, this is problematic. One that you made this hire and two that he's out there saying, I don't, right. I don't know anything about right. this. Right. So, so I think I'm, I'm hopeful that this market is going to still demand coverage. And I think, you know, as they're demanding coverage to see, um, you know, what stories come forth, what kind of narratives, what kind of portrayals, I still think there's, um, you know, a whole opportunity there. Um, I think there's also, and I've I've started to walk down this path, I think there's gonna be a lot of interesting opportunities when we talk about transgender participation in sport and what that means for female athletes and, you know, sport in general. Hmm.
0: Gosh. So many, so many possible follow-ups here. I know. Um, But I'm going to shift gears on you again, Lauren. Um, Sure. When you were at the University of Alabama in the College of Communication and Information Sciences, I know that you did have some overlap with Dr. Jennings Bryant. And I was wondering if you had um, a good Jennings story that you wanted to share um, or talk about a class that you might have taken with him.
2: Um, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think everybody has a a Jennings story because he's just, I mean, he was just this larger than life presence. And even now, every once in a while, I'll still go, wow, I, I got to study, you know, with, with, yeah, I got to take classes from him. And that's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, any, any seminal piece you read, especially with media effects, it probably has Dr. Bryant's name on it. Right. Um, but my, my first semester I took uh, media theory, you know, theory with him. Um, and so I was, you know, fresh into the doctoral program. And um, really, I mean, I think I decided in that spring to apply to Alabama and got in. So there wasn't a big, a big lead time between me applying and me starting. But you know, we got to, to theory. And I think anybody that has taken a class with Dr. Bryant knows that when he hands back a draft of your paper, um, <laughs> if he uses red ink, it looks like someone died Like, just stood over and bled out on your paper. And so that first semester, I think we handed in the first draft of our lit review, and I was feeling really good about it until I got it back. And that semester, he used purple, um, a purple pen, because it was nicer. Uh, But I just remember looking at it going, oh, my God, what have I done? I don't belong here. But just, I mean, every page was covered in ink, and I was like, oh, my God, and I mean, it, it sort of stayed that way. I mean, obviously, it was, you know, wonderful feedback. But so I got through theory. I obviously made it. He didn't fail me out of the grad program. Uh, but my second year, I took um, his seminar in children and media. And same thing. We, you know, we turned drafts in. And toward the end of the semester, one of the drafts I turned in, he handed them all back. And he was using red ink at that time because um, mm-hmm. I guess we'd been hardened into the ways of, into the ways of corrections. And I remember flipping through the paper and there was one page that had no marks on it. And I was like, oh, so <laughs> we we got to the next class and we were talking about our papers. And I said to him, Dr. Bryant, I feel like I have achieved a milestone in my doctoral career. And he said, what what was it? And I said, you gave me the paperback and there is one page and it has zero corrections on it. <laughs> And he, he did that little chuckle that he did. And he said, we'll give it back. Cause I clearly made a mistake. <laughs> and I refused. I said, Nope, I'm going to frame it. <laughs> it's going to stay. So yeah. um, that, that always makes me laugh to think about that. And I always sort of laugh to myself now when I correct, uh, or when I go through a graduate student's paper um, of, you know, all right, Let me, let me be like Dr. Brian and not scare them, but, you know, give them that, that feedback. That's really going to help them develop their ideas and, and, and all of that. But that, that still always makes me laugh to myself when I think about that one page that had nothing on it.
1: (laughs) I want to continue down, down this, this route and for for your looking back at that experience and then for those folks who may be newer into academia as instructors or faculty or new into graduate programs. um, When we think about research and writing, what keeps you motivated to do those corrections and get better? It can come down to minutia, it can be really hard. To push through. So what, what keeps you motivated
2: um, during those times? Probably a, a big motivation is I always want, I mean, I always want to put my best work out there. So, you know, when I get a revise and resubmit, my process is I don't read it. Like mm-hmm. I, I see it and I read those first couple lines that say, we invite you to revise and resubmit. And I just close the email. I go, <laughs> all right, and then at a later time, I'll open it and read through it. And that's where I do my um, unfiltered response where I will read through where I, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand that, you know, and I, I you know, do the unfiltered thing. And then I'll sit down and, and look through and say, all right, you know, what, what have they found that's similar? Where can I improve this? Because usually there's themes to that. You know, most reviewers will similarly point out, you know, here's what's missing in the lit review um and so to be able to look back you know eventually i go all right they have my best interest in mind even though they don't know who i am so let me you know put this all together and and put my best work out i feel like there's never any shortage of motivation in sport because there's always something that will you know happen that will you know there's a scandal there's drama um and so when things like that happen you know, sit there and, you know, write down questions about, ooh, what about this? What about this? Um, Going to conferences is always something that keeps me motivated um, and keeps me engaged. Um, Just hearing other people's, you know, takes on, you know, maybe something that I've been thinking about to hear their take. um, But just to, you know, come away from a conference, having heard, you know, days worth of excellent scholarship, it motivates me to go back and say, all right, what, what can I do that's cool now? Um, and I'm also involved in our Institute for Communication Research here at Indiana. So, you know, Mm -hmm. to be in our weekly lab meeting, again, with people that are engaged and passionate about research, um, is, is always there. So I think my, my advice there would be to try and put yourselves in, or try and put yourself in a situation where you are constantly engaged, where you are constantly inspired, um. And where you constantly are just motivated to want to produce, to produce work. And even to push through those times where you're just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired.
0: (laughs) So So I I feel like I have 29 additional questions that I could ask here. (laughs) Um, But what we're going to do is have a rapid fire finish and we may just have to have you back for another podcast episode. Sure. Um, you mentioned conferences and how that engagement is one of the things that keeps you motivated. So I want to clarify to our listeners that means you're actually attending the conference and attending sessions right. rather than bebopping around town and all of that sort of stuff. But um, <laughs> I mean, that, all- that part is motivating too.
2: So,
0: <laughs> right. We've all experienced, um, virtual conferences over the last year to 18 months. Um, but what, what conference are you looking forward to attending in the future when we return to in-person conferences?
2: There's two. Um, the first one would be the International Association for Communication and Sports Summit. Um, it will be in, um, Philly in, hopefully in March, um, if we can get COVID under control and and be in person. Um, But that's one of my favorite conferences because it is small. um, It is sport focused and it is the best group of people. Um, So it's all sport all day, all the time. Um, And just the the group of scholars that regularly go to that conference are so supportive and welcoming. And, you know, I've never met somebody there that I thought, wow, you know, they were kind of, not awesome. Um, so it's it's a great environment. Um, and if you're a grad student and you're interested in sports scholarship, that's one I would definitely recommend because we love grad students at that conference. Um, the second one is ICA, which is my other favorite one. just be, you know there's a sport division there so, I see a lot of the same scholars, but also, you know, there's more of a breath at ICA. There's more mm-hmm. divisions to go to. So, you know, I can go over to MassCom or, or gender studies and, and just see different areas and, and what people are doing and um, get get more of that breath. And the fact that it's supposed to be in Paris uh, this year is not, not, a, not a hard sell either. So I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that one, that one happens too.
0: Yes. And I'll just say, you're not the only person that said that. (laughs) We have a pretty consistent theme going across the ICA in Paris.
2: So we'll do, we should do a live podcast then from ICA in Um, Paris.
0: Oh, what a great idea. (laughs) Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. Lauren, it has been so great getting to catch up with you today and hearing about what you're doing now and hearing about all of this excellent research and scholarship. Thank you for taking the time in your day to, to chat with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today for our conversation with Dr. Lauren Reichert-Smith. I do want to note that just one week prior to this episode airing, she competed in and completed her third Ironman triathlon. She's a rock star for sure. And today's conversation was so much fun. And guess what? Next week, same thing, minus the triathlon. Next week, we talk with Dr. Iggy Fosu, who is now the department chair of media and communication at Sanford University, just an hour up the road from us. But his path to this new administrative position certainly wasn't linear, and he's got some funny stories to tell us about this path. Tune in next week when we chat with Dr. Iggy Fosu.